Thanks for tuning in to the Revival Tabernacle Podcast. Wherever you may be listening from, we hope that this message encourages you in the unwavering, unconditional love of Jesus Christ. Join us as we reach sinners, raise believers, and release leaders. Please enjoy the message from the RT Pulpit. So I'm going to kick us off, and we're going to look at Psalms 51. So turn there with me, but we're going to go to some other passages too. Amen. So turn to Psalms 51, but we're going to go throughout the, the Old Testament so that we can understand Psalms 51. Hallelujah. And as you're getting prepared, I'm just going to go before the throne of grace because I surely need grace and mercy <laughs> that I preach not by my ability, but I preach under the anointing and under the power of the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Father God, we are just so grateful. We're so grateful for this day that you have orchestrated, that you had planned, that you have divinely appointed for us to share and commune with you. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. For our time of communion, oh Lord God, for remembering the great sacrifice that you've done for us, that we might be free from the penalty of sin. Thank you, Jesus, for salvation. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for your body. Thank you for your presence that is alive and working in us today. Lord God, I am so grateful that that you inhabit the praises of your people, that I don't preach by my ability, but I preach through your anointing. So, dear Father, hide me behind your cross, that people will not see me, but will see your glory, that the words that I speak are not my own, but are words that were chosen just for your people to hear today. Be glorified, O oh Lord. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And I pray, oh Lord, that you are just magnified in this place, that your people are drawn ever closer to you as we grow in understanding the knowledge of you and your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. He's an awesome God. So, as I mentioned, we're starting a new sermon series, David's Greatest Hits. We're going to look at Psalms 51, but in looking at Psalms 51, we're going to look at some other passages too. And a lot of you, I mean, even the sermon series says David's greatest hit. So this is a, a fairly familiar passage, right? And something that we talked about at our last ministers forum, and I was so, I'm so grateful for our ministers forum that we as ministers, we come together about once every six weeks and we just have some discourse about the word and we study the word together and we're just building each other up. And at our last ministers forum, Pastor Lisa brought up such a good point. She said, we mentioned and we referenced scriptures that may be familiar to us, but they're foreign to maybe somebody else. And we take for granted where people may be in their walk with God. And so I am just excited about this opportunity to revisit some passages that may be really familiar to some, but completely brand new to others. And for those that is going to be really familiar for you, I, I bet that there's somebody else in this sanctuary that can probably preach Psalms 51 and preach the house down because you're so familiar with this passage. And that is great. So don't tune me out. Hopefully there'll be something new that you discover today. But for those that this is new, that you've heard about Psalms 51, you may have heard songs that say, creating me a clean heart, and you didn't quite know the background to what was going on in Psalm 51. So if you just bear with me, I'm going to go give us a, uh, some context to Psalms 51. And then we're going to kind of look at Psalms 51 into the context of our own lives. And so y'all know I'm not a super long-winded preacher, but this may take a while. just want to make sure that we get some context. Is that all right? Amen. Amen. You can talk back to me, you know. Y'all familiar with me. So we're going to explore what's going on in Psalms 51. 
And to understand Psalms 51, we have to go to 2 Samuel 11. So you can hold at Psalms 51 and you can write down 2 Samuel 11 and chapter 12 because that's going to give us some understanding of Psalms 51. Because when you look at Psalms 51, you may have a heading in your Bible. And I brought up like my, my huge Bible just because it's like four Bibles in one. I like the King James when, I, when it comes to Psalms. I mentioned that before. I don't know. Something about the King James or reading vows and these with Psalms just make me feel better. I don't know. It just feels good and poetic. So I'm going to read some of the passages passages in uh, the King James, especially the Psalms, but I like the Amplified and New American Standard, and so that's why I brought the, the big thing up here. And, you know, don't get intimidated by this huge Bible. But in a lot of the heading for Psalm 51, you will see something that says uh, a penitent psalm, a contrite sinner psalm, uh, a psalm to the chief mus uh, musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had sinned with Bathsheba. And so you may be wondering, well, who's Nathan? Who's Bathsheba? What's the sin that they, what happened in that? So we look at Psalm 51, but we have to look at 2 Samuel 11 and 12 to understand that header. Amen? And so understanding this context of Psalm 51, because it is a psalm of lament. So we have to know what is David lamenting over? What happened in 2 Samuel 11 and 12? So I'm going to go give you some context of 2 Samuel 11 to 12. I'm not preaching 2 Samuel 11 to 12, but I'm just going to give you some context. Okay. And then when we go to Psalm 51, we're going to understand how does David go from in this lament from conviction to restoration? Hallelujah. So that is my, my title for the sermon is moving from conviction to restoration. But there's something that happened to that conviction. So let's look at 2 Samuel chapters 11. I'm going to give you some context to this. And so this is the account of King David. And just to understand, again, I'm not going to take for granted that people know who King David is. So giving you some background, some bio to King David. He was a shepherd. He was the smallest of Jesse's sons. And he was the one who, who slain the, the great giant uh, Goliath. He was anointed to be king. He served uh, Saul. He was a great musician. He ministered in song. He was a great warrior. He was a dedicated servant to God. Even Paul, when he references David in Acts 13 and 22, he said that David was a man after God's own heart, that David served God. He loved God. But even David dealt with sin. Recognize that the Bible is not concerned with painting a picture of perfect people serving God, but it's concerned with God using imperfect people for his glory. Hallelujah. David is a man after God's own heart, and he wrote psalms, and he wrote songs, and even he struggled with sin. He abused his power. He took advantage of people, and he just blew it. So let's look at how he, he, he messes things up in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. So what did he do? Well, there's a war going on with the uh, Ammonites, and King David, he's taking a stroll. He notices Bathsheba bathing. She's minding her own business, by the way. He asks somebody else, well, who is that? Finds out that she's married to Uriah, one of his soldiers, and then he still requests for her and commits adultery with her. Now we're down to verse 4. She now is pregnant with David's child. And we know that it's David's child because Uriah has been off fighting this war for forever long. And so we know that this has to be David's child. So David comes up with some schemes and scams to kind of cover up his mess. 
So first, what does David do? He tries to cover it up by sending for Uriah and telling Uriah, come on home. Go home and be with your wife. Uriah comes home, but he doesn't go to his wife. He sleeps outside. He said, listen, I'm a dutiful soldier. Everybody else is out there putting their life on the line. Everybody else is out there sleeping in tents and sleeping on the floor. I can't be a good soldier and go home and be with my wife. What would that look like? So he says, no, I'm going to sleep outside. I can't do it, David. David said, well, listen, wait with me, you know, spend the night a, a couple more nights and then you can go back to, to the field and maybe you can go home during that time. So first scheme, he says, go home. Uriah says, nope, I'm a good soldier. I'm not going to go home. I'm sleep outside. Second scheme David does is that he tells Uriah, you know, to spend the night for a couple more nights and then he thinks that then Uriah will go home. So what does David do? He gives him a great feast. He gives him a whole bunch of liquor. He gets Uriah drunk and thinking that drunk Uriah is going to go home and be with his wife. But even drunk Uriah was like, no. I am a man of integrity. You may have given me all these things to eat and drink, but I'm not going home because I'm a soldier. And so he doesn't go home. So David, in his final and successful attempt at covering up his sin, he tells his general Joab to put Uriah on the front lines of the most dangerous battle lines and then tells the rest of the soldiers to retreat so that Uriah is out there by himself. And so he knows setting him up like that, Uriah is going to get killed. And that's exactly what happens. As soon as David finds out that Uriah is killed, they tell Bathsheba. Bathsheba laments and she's grieving. After her moment of, of grieving and lamentation, then David marries her so that it looks better that she's pregnant, right? David's not marrying her because he just loves her so much. He's not marrying her out of devotion, but out of sheer selfishness to make sure that he doesn't look bad, because he knows that she's pregnant. He knows that it's his child. So to make sure that he doesn't look bad, he's like, listen, now that he's dead, we got the period of mourning over. Come on, let's get married. And then it'll look like, oh, wow, there's such a quick pregnancy. Oh, look, right? I'm not preaching 2 Samuel 11, but if I were, I would want to make sure that we make this point that how dedicated have we been to sin that we're willing to do everything conceivable to keep up with the right appearances so that we don't look so bad? How dedicated are we to our own mistakes that we would do everything we can in our power to cover our tracks so that at the very least we look like we have it all together knowing that we're a mess and that we've been messing it up for a long time? I'm not preaching 2 Samuel, but I just want to make sure that we recognize that David was committed to this. And there's been times when I've been so committed to my mistakes because I don't want to look bad that I'm doing all these other things to cover my tracks to make sure that at the very least, it looks like I have it together. So now we're at 2 Samuel 12, and we'll get to Psalm 51 very quickly. The Lord speaks to the prophet Nathan who simply tells David a story. He says, listen, David, I got to tell you about this rich man and this poor man. This rich man has everything. He has all this livestock. He has all of this money. He has many wives. And we have this poor man who has this one little baby lamb. A traveler comes in, and they are really big in this culture, very big on hospitality. So if a traveler comes, you have to feed him. You have to uh, make room for him. You have to, you know, uh, uh, serve them. And so the rich man, instead of, you know, providing for one of his own livestock to feed this traveler, he takes from the poor man the one little baby lamb that he has. David gets enraged. David is upset. He said, that man has to die. He needs to restore back to the poor man fourfold. He needs to give him four times as much of what he took from him. And Nathan says, you are that man. 
You have wives, you have wealth, you have power, you are in a position of authority, and yet you took from Uriah who'd had nothing but Bathsheba. David says in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, the Lord has also put away your sin. When confronted by this parable, and again, I'm not really preaching 2 Samuel, but if I were, I want to make sure that we note that when David is confronted by Nathan by this parable, David wants retribution on behalf of the poor man. But when he realizes that he is the rich man, he wants mercy. Our calls for justice and mercy is really dependent upon where we sit at the table. That depending upon what side of the table we are, we want justice. We want things to be right. There is right and wrong. But when we're the ones doing the wrong, we want mercy. We want grace. Help us to understand that there's someone on the end of that table that when we're calling for justice, when we're calling and we're getting enraged, that we have this righteous indignation that raises up. Remember that we were on the other side of that table, need of mercy and a need of grace. David recognizes that, yes, there needs to be restoration, but yes, I need mercy too. So let's now look at Psalms 51. Hallelujah. And I'm going to read first from the King James Version. Like I said, I appreciate the King James Versions, especially with the the Psalms, just because of the poetic nature of the Psalms, that Psalms are poetry. Psalms are broken up into these different patterns of of poetry, Psalms of lament, Psalms of of praise, Psalms of thanksgiving, Psalms of deliverance. Uh, There's all these different categories of Psalms, and this Psalm is particularly a Psalm of lament, but I like reading in the King James because of that poetic nature. And there's these different categories of psalms that uh, uh, there's a, a theologian, Walter Brueggemann, that kind of breaks up the psalms in the category of, of um, excuse me, of orientation, disorientation, and then new orientation. And so he breaks up into the psalms into these categories of orientation, disorientation, and new orientation. He says that, that most of the psalms will fall into one of those categories. What I love about Psalms 51 is that all of those categories are right there in Psalms 51. What do I mean by orientation? Orientation meaning that you recognize the creation. And David talks about creation and how he was crafted when he was born. And then disorientation is talking about sin. And David talks about and acknowledges his sin in Psalms 51. And then new orientation is recognizing deliverance and restoration. All of that happens in these 19 verses in Psalms 51. So we're going to walk through. How does David go from conviction of his sin to restoration? How does he go from from orientation to disorientation to new orientation because so often I believe that we stop at the disorientation. We stop at the point where we are convicted of our sin. So how do we move from conviction to restoration? So let's look at Psalms 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to unto the multitude of thy tender mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, here's the creation, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts." 
and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sin. Blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of salvation. And uphold me with thy free spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways. And sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Thou God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise for thou desirest not sacrifice else I would give it thou delightest not, delightest not in burnt offering the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart O God thou will not despise do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall thy offer bullocks upon thine altar. Hallelujah. After he's confronted by Nathan about the rich man and the poor man, he recognized that he is that rich man. David pens this psalm. When we're convicted on our, of our sin, that's a good thing. It's good to get called out. I'm talking about conviction, not condemnation. And I believe we get the two of those things mixed up because condemnation has this air of guilt and shame. Condemnation is judgment. Condemnation makes someone feel bad because they sin differently than you sin. Condemnation is having levels of I'm here and you're there. Condemnation says that there's different levels of sin. No, sin is sin. And the word of God says in Romans 8 and 1 that there is now no condemnation condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And so I'm not talking about condemnation. I'm talking about conviction. Conviction leads to repentance. Conviction leads to change. Conviction leads to restoration. So it's okay that when you're hearing a word and you just feel it in your gut, right? Something just kind of hits you, that you feel convicted, that something that you're going through kind of gets called out. That's a good thing. Because so often we want things to change and we want a deeper relationship with God, but that deeper relationship comes at the cost of us dealing with our sin. It comes with conviction. At first, we have to deal with that conviction so that it can lead to repentance, so that it can lead to greater intimacy with God. And so how does David move from conviction to restoration? Because sometimes we will feel that conviction and then we don't know what to do about it, that we just feel bad. And I've been there before where I'll hear a sermon and I just feel bad about what I'm going through. I feel bad about what I've done. But how do I move that, that feeling of conviction to be restored back to God? So how does David do that? Let's look at some of these verses, verses three through five. He acknowledges his sin. So how do we move from conviction to restoration? You have to acknowledge the sin. So verse three and five, and I'm reading from the NASB now. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Against you, you only I have sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. 
So he calls it what God calls it. He says transgressions, done evil in your sight. He's calling it sin. He acknowledges that he did something wrong and he blew it. So often when we feel bad about something that we've done, we want to cover it up and scheme just like David was scheming. But once he was cut out, he had to call it what God calls it. Lord, I sinned. And we don't want to use the word sin. There's so many ministers and pastors and preachers who don't speak of sin, but sin is just missing the mark. It doesn't mean that you're a terrible person. It just means that you missed the mark. That's literally what transgression means. It's an archery term, meaning that there is the bullseye, that there is the mark of the prize of the Hulk on in Christ Jesus that we need to strive toward. But sometimes we miss the mark. And anyone who says otherwise is lying, and so they are therefore missing the mark because we all have sinned and fallen is short to the glory of God. And so we have to recognize and acknowledge that sometimes we miss the mark. And David calls it what God calls it. When you're called out and when you acknowledge your own sin, there is some relief that that hidden thing is now revealed and all the energy you used to try to cover it up and fake it till you make it, it's all gone. There's some relief with conviction. I know it doesn't feel good, but there's also that relief that says it's out. Everybody knows I I can stop faking it. I can stop covering it up. I don't have it together. I'm going to let it go and go to the one who can fix me. I'm going to let it go, and I'm going to seek God for restoration. I'm going to call it what he calls it. It's sin. I messed up. It's a transgression. It's iniquity. Lord, I need your help. Conviction should lead to that sense of relief. And self-examination, where you recognize that you've fallen short, and you just call it what God's call it. It's sin. We messed up. So he acknowledges his sin, calls it what God calls it, and then he appeals to God's character and requests uh, restoration. And so he even starts it off with verse 1. Be gracious, have mercy uh, to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. If you look at verses 10 and 12, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of salvation. So he's requesting for God to do something. First he says, have mercy on me according to your loving kindness. Other translations call it a steadfast love. According to abundant mercy. God is merciful. It is in his nature and his character to forgive. Yes, he is a righteous judge, and David recognizes that too. He calls him a righteous judge. So yes, he's holy. Yes, he's righteous. And yes, he is also forgiving, and he's also full of grace. He's also full of mercy. Sometimes when we're convicted of sin, all we can see is our sin. All we can see is where we missed the mark and where we may have messed up, but we don't recognize and see how God wants to restore us. We hold on to that sin and shame when God is waiting for us to remember that, yes, he's holy, but he's also merciful. There's nothing that we can do to separate us from the love of God. Romans 8 says that neither height nor death, nor things present, nor things to come, nor angels, nor demons, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. But so often when we recognize our sin, we forget that we serve a gracious God. We forget that we serve a merciful God. We forget that we serve a God who is in his nature, a loving God who has an abundance of mercy and an abundance of grace for us to pull from. Yes, we've missed the mark. And I've 
said it uh, uh, before you all before in a different sermon, but so often we miss that mark. We're just so caught up in the sin and so caught up that we sinned that we forget that God is gracious and we feel like we let God down. But recognize you can never let God down because we never had him up. We never held God up. Recognize that we can't fall from grace because if we could fall, then it's not grace. If we could keep ourselves upright, then it wouldn't be grace. And so when we acknowledge our sin, we also have to acknowledge the nature of God, which is to be forgiving, which is loving, which is merciful, which is gracious. And so, yes, we missed the mark. Yes, I messed up. Yes, I need help. And I need help from a God who has riches and abundance of mercy and grace just for me. It never runs out. His mercies are new every morning. (laughs) Hallelujah. He never runs out of grace. He never runs out of mercy. And so while I think I've messed up too many times, it says, blot out my transgressions according to your abundance of mercy. So we acknowledge our sin, but we also acknowledge that God's mercy is greater. And we have to request it. We can't just sit in our conviction, but we have to move from that conviction to repentance and receive that forgiveness. Receive that forgiveness. He's waiting on you. He doesn't want you to carry the weight of that sin. He wants you to ask him to remove that burden, remove that guilt, remove that shame. It's not for you to carry because Christ carried it on the cross for us. And so he wants you to appeal to his loving kindness, appeal to his grace, appeal to his mercy. So we acknowledge our sin and we have to acknowledge God's mercy. And then David asked the Lord to restore him. He has very specific requests. So he appeals to what he knows is true of God. He's convinced that God is merciful. And then he asked God to do specific things. Blot out my transgressions. This is in verse 1 and verse 9. That literally means remove it from the record. Wash me. Cleanse me. In verse 7, forgive me. Basically, that's what that washing and cleansing means. Just forgive me, Lord. And David asked the Lord to, in verse 10, create in me a new heart. That word create is literally the same word that we see in Genesis in the creation story. God, I need you to start over brand new. (laughs) I need you to blot out the record and I need you to start brand new. I need a brand new heart, God. Create in me a clean heart. Restore the joy of salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. I love that David doesn't just start off with create me brand new because a lot of us stop there, but he's like, but he's interested in what happens in the days to come because just because you're new doesn't mean you won't mess up again. And so that's what's important about verse 12. Restore to me the joy of salvation and bless me with a willing heart. Bless me with a willing spirit. What does that mean? That means uphold me with the willing spirit. It means that, God, I want you to put in me your desires and help me to do your will. That's literally what it means. 
I need your desires and to help me to do your will. Uphold me with the willing spirit. Sustain me with the ability to follow after you. Because Paul even recognizes in Romans 7 that even the good that I want to do, I don't do it. Jesus recognizes in the gospel, he says, the spirit, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We have to acknowledge that we will struggle all throughout all the days of our lives. But David gives a template to help us with our struggle that we can ask of God, yes, cleanse me. Yes, blot out my transgressions, but restore me and help me to get through. Help me, Holy Spirit. Help me, Lord. Bless me with a willing spirit to follow after you. We want to do good. But we need the Lord to work in us, both the will and to do. This is in Philippians 2 and 13. It says, it is God who works in us, both the will, the desire, and to do his good pleasure. So often we want to do it out of our own ability, but every time we will blow it. But if we work through the power of the Holy Spirit, he will work in us, both the will and to do his good pleasure. Hallelujah. 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 So we, and I'm getting ready to take my seat. So we acknowledge, yes, we blew it. We acknowledge that he's a merciful and gracious God. We seek restoration. This is not, again, something that you can do of your own ability, but something that we are requesting God to do and something that he desires to do. He desires to restore us. He desires to create in us a clean heart. And he desires to help us in the days to come to continue to do his will. I can't do it on my own. I need the work of the Holy Spirit. He said, bless me with, uphold me with a willing spirit. Then, verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your way. Then I'll worship and serve. The problem sometimes with us, and I'm including myself in this, we want to change the order around. We want to do that first. That when we blow it, sometimes we want to just get all these things and, and start doing all of these things, thinking that that's going to make us right again. We sit and we think, okay, I blew it. But if I do all these things on my churchy checklist and my religious checklist, then everything's going to be all right. If I just start going to church more, I'm going to go to 10 o'clock and I'm going to go to first Sunday uh, evening service. I'm going to go to Wednesdays in the Word and I'm going to go to life groups. If I just keep busy, right? If I keep doing all of these things, if I just fill my time up with good works, then I would have worked off my bad debt of my sin. Know that there's no activity that you can do to work off the debt of sin, which is why we need Christ. Amen. But we want to do that. We know that we blew it. And so the next day we wake up and we say, okay, I'm going to do all these things in my churchy checklist to make sure that I have evened out the scale, that I have done something, I've done enough good to balance out all this bad stuff that I've done, but it doesn't work like that. We have to confess our sin, receive his forgiveness, ask for him to help us to restore us, and then we're led to service. The word of God says in Ephesians 2 and 8 that we're saved by grace, not of works, lest no man should boast. And then it goes on in Ephesians 2 and says that we're saved unto good works. Good works aren't bad. It's great that you want to be in the house of the Lord. It's great that you want to serve. But what's even better is that you're serving God, that you're seeking God, hallelujah, to restore you and then out of your love and relationship with God 
God you serve. God doesn't want our sacrifices of our, our churchy activities. He wants our heart. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. It says a broken spirit and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. If you are wondering sometimes that your worship or your walk is a struggle, it's because you're trying to do everything out of your own ability. But God wants you to bring him a broken heart. You're trying to bring God everything else but a broken heart. You're trying to bring God all of your good activities but all he wants is your heart. You're trying to bring to God all these things that make you good, but God just wants your broken heart. That's the sacrifice that he wants. We don't want to give God our broken heart because that means we have to then acknowledge that we have sinned. We don't want other people to know that we're broken. If someone sees me come up to this altar, I wonder what they will think of me. If someone sees me asking pastor for prayer, I wonder what they would think of me. If someone sees me going to a council for help. I wonder what they would think of me. If someone sees me confessing my faults to my brother and sister, I wonder what they would think of me. But so then you start doing all these activities thinking that will be enough. But God says, all I want is your brokenness. Worship is intimately connected with sacrifice and brokenness. We have to sacrifice our desires to look like we have it all together. We have to sacrifice the guilt and shame that we just so enjoy holding on to. And I know that may sound like an oxymoron, but we enjoy holding on to that guilt and shame because we want to have it hidden because we know when it is, is, it's exposed that other people may say something about it. So we're going to hold on to that burden of sin and we don't want to sacrifice that to seek God. And so we're stunted in our worship. We're stunted in, in, in our praise. We're stunted. See, uh, David doesn't talk about praise till the very end. He talks about God filling up his lips with praise. Then he talks about sacrifice at the very end because he recognizes there has to be some confession that goes with this conviction. There has to be that confession of sin before I can get to the worship that God wants from me. Sacrifice and worship are intimately connected. When we look in the word of God. In Genesis, the first mention of even the word worship is Genesis 22 and 5. When Abraham says, when he's going up to sacrifice his beloved son Isaac, he says to his servants, me and the lad are going up to the mountain to worship. It has everyone else stay down here. Worship and sacrifice are intimately connected. That when we sacrifice unto God, that is a worship to him. That a part of our worship is to acknowledge that we will sacrifice our shame, sacrifice our guilt, give up the things that you think God wants and bring to him what he truly desires, which is your brokenness in your heart. Jesus says in John 4 and 23 that the hour comes and now is that when they that worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him. And that scripture has always, uh, uh, has always been a scripture that I've tried to study and understand. But as I was studying Psalms 51 and trying to understand David's move from conviction to restoration, I understood that what Jesus is talking about, worship in spirit and in truth, is the same spirit that David is talking about in Psalm 51, which is a broken spirit. And in truth, recognizing the truth and being convinced that God loves you. Spirit, meaning that I am broken up over my mess 
And I am also convinced of your truth that you are a forgiving and loving God. That they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That in spirit that, Lord, I am broken and I can't fix it. That I am broken and that I need you. Truth. I am convinced that you are a loving and gracious God. That in spirit, Lord, I'm sacrificing my, my public appearance. I'm sacrificing my image. I'm sacrificing the version of myself that I give to everybody else. But I'm coming to you authentically, Lord. And I'm giving you my brokenness. I'm worshiping you in spirit. But I'm also acknowledging your truth that you love me with an everlasting love love, that you are always faithful and just to forgive me of my sin, that you are abundant in mercy and in grace. I worship you in spirit, recognizing, dear Lord, that there are things in my life that are contrary to your will, but also truth, knowing that you will give me a sustaining spirit to worship you if I ask for it. Hallelujah. Worship team can come. Hallelujah. I told you I wouldn't be before you long, but I want to make sure that we recognize that in Psalms 51, we have a template that if you today, and I'm not going to necessarily call out sin because you know what your sin is. You've been convicted of it by the Holy Spirit already. That you may have had Nathans in your life, right? You may have had family members. You may have heard something over the pulpit. Pastor Devin may have shared something. You may have heard something on Wednesdays in the Word. You may have heard something in life groups that convicted you of, of an area of your life that you know you're missing a mark. So you know what it is. But are you willing today to call it what God calls it and worship him in spirit and in truth to bring him your brokenness? He, he, he is not, uh, what was the word I want to use? But he, he is not surprised by your brokenness. He is not appalled. Yeah, that's the word I want to use. He's not appalled by the things that you're struggling with. So often we think that if we do a good enough job of, of covering up our tracks that we've convinced enough people that we have it all together, that we've also convinced God that he's an omniscient God. He already knows what you're struggling with. He's not shocked by what you're struggling with. He knows you. He made you. And he wants to make you over again. Hallelujah. I encourage everyone to stand to their feet. Amen. Hallelujah today, are you willing to move like David did? There's an area of your life that you know you've missed the mark. That there's some place that you know that you have transgressed, that you have stepped outside of the will of God. Knowing that when you step outside of the will of God, that doesn't mean you step outside of his grace. But he desires intimate relationship with you. That there are people here who have been struggling with getting intimate and, and having a, a close relationship growing in their walk with God. And that happens through our brokenness. We're trying to hold the pieces together. But God says, bring the pieces to me. Yes. <laughs> Hallelujah. So I invite you that if that is you, do not be held back by the desires to, to look like you have it together. Don't be held back by guilt and shame thinking that someone's going to think less of you. 
but there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Join me here at the altar as we bring God our brokenness, that we move from conviction to restoration, that we move from feeling broken and hurt to being restored, having the joy of the Lord restored. If you've been struggling with that joy, I'm not talking about happiness, because happiness is predicated on happening. This is it's based on how we're feeling, but I'm talking about the joy of the Lord that is sustaining. Just join me here. It's not about who sees you. It's not about who isn't here, but this is about you and God. God wants your brokenness. He wants that contrite spirit. Worshiping him in spirit and in truth is literally saying, Lord, here I am. Here I am with my brokenness. Here I am with missing the mark. I'm tired of trying to cover it up. And I want to feel that relief of laying it at the altar. I sacrifice my guilt. I sacrifice my shame. I sacrifice my need to look like I have it together, Lord. And I just want to worship you. Lord, I need you to sustain me with a willing spirit. Work in me both the will and to do. You are a good pleasure. If that is you, if that's your heart's desire, just come to the altar. Don't wait for someone to pray with you, but just call out to the Lord. Appeal to his tender mercies, his loving kindness. If you're someone who has never had a relationship with Christ, this is your time to acknowledge that Christ died for you, that he loves you with the everlasting love. That he died on the cross for your sins. And simply all you have to do is the same thing that we're doing now is confess your sin and believe in your heart that the Lord Jesus died for you and receive that precious gift of salvation. Hallelujah. Call it what he calls it. Acknowledge that he is merciful, that he's a gracious God, that he loves you. And receive the restoration. Receive a new heart today. Receive a renewed spirit, a renewed mind, my Lord. So many of us are struggling in our mind with sin. Renew our minds, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Our community at Revival Tabernacle aims to reach our city and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus. Thank you for your support. If you want to further connect with us, you can find us online at www.revivaltab.org.